It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iran collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Terrence Eagle, the podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the past seven days and how we got here. On today's episode... You destroy my country, I'll kill you. That is a very correct statement. I appeal to you to protect your rights. We are meant to be a cautionary tale. Three of my colleagues are in jail for doing their job. If journalists aren't able to do their jobs in a democracy, if they're not able to get out there and do this kind of reporting, then it's the public that suffers. Last week, one of the Philippines' most prestigious journalists, Maria Ressa, was found guilty in what many are calling a sham trial and an attempt to intimidate the free press. To talk about the case and this pattern of media crackdown, I'm joined today by Peter Gresta. Peter is the UNESCO Chair in Journalism and Communication at the University of Queensland and a founding director of the Alliance for Journalist Freedom. Peter also knows better than anyone what Maria has been going through this past week. Five years ago, Peter was Al Jazeera's East Africa correspondent. It was then, when working on assignment in Egypt, that he found himself in the middle of his own sham trial. In his case, it was followed by 400 days in prison. All right, uh, Professor Gresta, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Could you start by maybe telling us who is Maria Ressa and what happened to her early this week? Well, Maria Ressa is one of the most extraordinary journalists I've ever come across. Our honoree and uh, keynote speaker. Maria Ressa has been honored around the world for her courage and for her work in fighting disinformation. She's a Filipino-born um, American journalist who spent uh, quite a few years as CNN's bureau chief in Jakarta before going back to the Philippines, where she set up uh, probably the Philippines' most fiercely independent um, and I'd argue professional news organizations called Rappler.com. It's my great pleasure to welcome Maria Ressa to the school, this year's recipient of the Columbia Journalism Award. 
She has been fierce in, and her organisation has been fierce in the way that they've reported the government and President Duterte and allegations of corruption, but also most uh, notoriously, I guess, his war on drugs, the number of people who've been killed in the war on drugs. And so Maria and Rappler have really drawn a lot of frustration, a lot of anger from the president and his supporters in recent years. Look, why should you complain if I am critical against media? Are you not critical of me? If you are critical, if Rappler is critical and saying about, let's do it with honor. And uh, earlier this week, she was convicted of cyber libel, which is defamation committed online. Now, I suppose on, in a, on its own, um, that's, that's not unusual. Libel is a crime in most places around the world, and certainly you know, plenty of journalists have been there legitimately. But I guess the really troubling thing about Maria's case is that she was committed for a story she didn't write mm. based on a crime that wasn't, well, based on a problem that wasn't a crime at the time the story was written. Can you explain that a little bit more? So it wasn't a crime when, when the article was published? So the, the, the story was published back in 2012. And about four months later, the government passed the cyber libel statute. Mm. Most times, laws are not retrospective. And that is true of this case as well. You can't be prosecuted for something, for a crime that didn't exist at the time you, you committed. Makes sense. <laughs> um, it does make sense. But in Maria's case, what happened was that her organization corrected a typo, fixed up a spelling error. And so as far as the court was concerned, or the prosecutors were concerned, um, Rappler had republished the story. Now, again, <laughs> the problem is that in libel, there's a statute of limitations. You can't you can take someone to court for libel for 12 months, but after that, you're done. Well, in this case, it took the complainant four years to take his case to court, uh, take his case mm. to the, the prosecutors. But um, the judge argued that because the story was online, that counted as continuous publication, wow. and therefore she was still open to prosecution. That's very hard to understand. At Just, a whole host of levels, it makes it doesn't make a great deal right. of sense, which is why a lot of people really believe, and me included, believe that it, this really has nothing to do with libel, that the prosecutors, um, under pressure perhaps from the government and the courts themselves, have really been using this case, using the law very, very creatively, stretching it really, I think, beyond breaking point, to try and find a way to go after Maria and Rappler. Yeah, I mean, that angle of it is a little bit more understandable that the prosecutors had it out for her to a certain extent for being so critical of um, the president of the Philippines. And so they crafted this, as you called it, very creative legal argument. But I find it very strange and confusing that a judge would accept this argument that, you know, an article that was published before the law came into effect was only updated to correct a spelling error two years later. And then after that, it took an additional four years, so three years beyond the statute of limitations to bring charges against Maria, who's not even the author of the article. I mean, why would a judge swallow all of these arguments? Well, because I think the judge is under enormous pressure from the politicians.
I'm, I'm sort of always hesitant to criticize judi- uh, supposedly independent judiciaries, but it's really hard to come to any other conclusion in this case. Now, well, obviously, we don't know what the what pressures the judge might have been under, and you know, the Philippines insists the judiciary is independent. But really, when you look at the facts of the case, when you look at how fast the case came to court, it was extraordinarily quick by by Filipino standards. Mm. It's really hard to come to any other conclusion. And let's face it, President Duterte has a very hostile relationship with the press in the Philippines. Yeah, can you tell us about him a little bit more, President Rodrigo Duterte? So this isn't anything new, his persecution of the media, is it? No, it's not. Um, He's called them... Uh, can I say this on air? <laughs> if he can say it, you can say it. <laughs> well, and he's called them sons of bitches. He's, he's um, said that um, if, I mean, jo- the Philippines is one of the most deadly places on earth for journalists. Um, we've seen literally dozens being killed uh, over mm-hmm. the years. Um, and President Duterte has said that if the journalists misbehave, they, they should expect to be targeted for assassination. Oh my God. Um, he's a populist. He is extremely right-wing. He is brutally uncompromising. As I mentioned earlier, he's been, his war on drugs has been particularly savage. He said, you, you know, if you're a drug addict or a pusher, you should be, you know, that, that there's no excuses, you should be killed. Um, and he's given the police the authority to do just that, uh, carry out extrajudicial killings just simply on the suspicion. You destroy my country, I'll kill you. And it's a legitimate uh, thing. If you destroy our young children, I will kill you. That is a very correct statement. There is nothing wrong in trying to preserve the interest of the next generation. And so the rule of law seems to be a little bit out of control in the Philippines. Um, But I think, again, let's go back to what we're talking about. The problem is that that we've seen um, a fairly substantial and persistent campaign of harassment, of legal harassment, of Maria and a whole host of other news organizations that have been critical of the president and his policies. And by critical, let's be honest, we're not talking about um, op-eds that have been slamming the president. We're simply talking about news stories that have highlighted some of the very serious problems that have emerged out of these policies. We're talking about news stories that are focused on corruption that's emerged in um, Duterte's own administration. And, I, you know, in that respect, the journalists have been simply doing their jobs. Right. But we've seen this, this campaign. Maria is, is currently facing, I think, eight separate legal cases <laughs> um, in total up to about 100 years of prison oh time if, if she's convicted to the, and, and sentenced, if she gets maximum sentences for all of those. Um, we're seeing other news organizations, the um, ABS-CBN, which is the Philippines' largest television network. Um, it has, hasn't had its license renewed. And again, that seems to be largely mm. because of the government's complaints about the way the network has been behaving, about the critical reporting it's been running. It's been so sustained that Maria has called it lawfare, um, the use of the law to to silence journalism mm. and and that's really worrying not just for maria and, and the journalists because again let's face it and there are plenty of people who've suffered far worse than, than maria's fate but ultimately what this means and really what we always have to come back to in these conversations 
is about the impact that it has on Filipino people, on democracy itself. Because if journalists aren't able to do their jobs in a democracy, if they're not able to get out there and do this kind of reporting, if they're intimidated and threatened and harassed um, to the point where they feel it's impossible to cover the stories that really need to be covered, then it's the public that suffers. People won't get those stories. They won't um, hear about the things that are taking place. All they will get is government propaganda. Yeah, I know Maria warned of that speaking after the verdict. She was talking about how uh, Rappler, her, her publication, they're trying to make an example out of them. And she was really emphatic that we need as, as a people to stand up to this. Um, I appeal to you, the journalists in this room, the Filipinos who are listening, to protect your rights. We are meant to be a cautionary tale. We are meant to make you afraid, right? So I appeal again, don't be afraid because if you don't use your rights, you will lose them. If we don't challenge a brazen move to try to roll back the rights guaranteed in the Constitution, we will lose them. We shouldn't be voluntarily giving up our rights. You know, considering the position she was in, she was pretty confident and composed, although with her voice breaking a little bit. But I'm wondering, she said she's going to appeal. What do you what do you think is going to be the future of this for her? I mean, we can talk also about for the Philippines at large, but what are her options right now? Uh, listen, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not an expert in Filipino law. I know that mm-hmm. she does have the the, 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 um, the option to appeal, and, and as you said, she's already indicated that she will um, she will use that option. She will appeal. Yeah. Um, if she loses the appeal, she could face up to six years in prison. In this case alone, again, by the way, which is another unusual thing. In most cases, libel is a civil civil suit or mm, right not like prison time, some criminal case. Um, but so I, 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 it's hard for me to know quite how this is going to roll out of the timeframes involved. There is still quite some distance to go here. But look, this case alone, even if Maria is acquitted, um, it, will have, it will have succeeded in intimidating a lot of other journalists from doing mm. um, serious reporting. You know, the kind of stress that Maria's been going through, the kind of costs of legal action that she and Rappler have had to have had to bear aren't the kind of costs that most news organisations um, are ever able to really, you know, stand up. And so if people are, are yeah. have taken to court for this kind of stuff, the chances are that news organisations will, yeah. will have to fall if they, if they have to cover those kinds of legal expenses. This revelation, obviously, it's only a week old, though she's been battling legal issues for ages. But a, a month ago, I know one of their major channels, I think you mentioned it, was shut down by the government. So I'm wondering, with this kind of climate surrounding the media, have you seen a change already in the way that Filipino journalists are behaving? Are they more cautious? Is there a bit more censorship now? Uh, look, I think undoubtedly there are. I mean, to say that there is censorship is, is to suggest that um, you know, government censors are taking a big fat red pen or 
you know, a, a big marker pen to, to, to the copy and, and blacking out sections of newspapers and so on or banning stories from being published. And it doesn't work that way. It is this kind of intimidation which is forcing journalists to seriously think about the stories that they cover. Um, but also remember that the, a lot of the other news organisations that are surviving um, are being run by supporters. Another um, newspaper, the Philippine Inquirer, um, was very critical of the government and through a number, of, a whole host of circumstances, the owners decided that they had no option but to sell the paper and they sold it to one of the richest men in the Philippines who happens to be a staunch ally of the president. Mm. Surprise, surprise. Um, guess what? That paper is no longer anywhere near as critical as it used to be. Mm. You know, it, it, it's, it's very difficult to fight back against this kind of sustained pressure. And what we're seeing is the media broadly becoming more compliant, less aggressive, and ultimately, as, as I said, it's the public that um, is missing out on the kinds of stories that really deserve to be covered. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a pretty bleak picture for the Philippines. And I wonder if the repercussions of it are not even just limited to the Philippines. Do you feel that actions like this, you think that that kind of has a ripple effect outwards to other countries as well? Oh, undoubtedly. Absolutely. Um, and, and particularly because we're not seeing the kind of blowback that you would have expected um, yeah. under normal circumstances. The Australian government has been particularly silent on this. I've, um, I was hoping that our own foreign minister would speak up, and maybe she will do so in the coming days or weeks, but um, I had hoped that um, she might speak out about this. She hasn't. Hmm. Typically, in these kinds of circumstances, it's the United States that leads the way. Um, you know, as, as the home of the First Amendment, which guarantees press freedom, it's the gold standard of constitutional protections for press freedom, and the U.S. has, in the past, led, really led the way in, in upholding the principles of liberal democracy, including press freedom. But President Trump, of course, has his own issues with journalists. Mr. President... I'll tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. Go ahead. I, I think that's unfair. You're a very rude person. The way you treat Sarah Huckabee is horrible. And the way you treat other people are horrible. You shouldn't treat people that way. Go ahead. In, in, go in ahead, Jim, Peter, go in, ahead. In Jim's defense, I've traveled with him and watched him. He's a diligent reporter who busts well, his Well, I'm not a big fan of, of yours either, so, I understand. Know, to be honest. So let, me, so let me ask you a question if I can. You repeatedly you said... Are, you are the best. Mr. President, you repeatedly, over the course okay, of... Okay, just sit down, please. Well, when you, when you report fake news, no. When you report fake news, which CNN does a lot, you are the enemy of the people. Go ahead. Mr. President, over the course, over the course of... He has in the past been very, very supportive. Um, he's praised President Duterte quite vociferously. And really? Yes, yeah, he has. What for? In what capacity? <laughs> for his, for, his, for his, his, you know, his strength of leadership, for his, um, his work in the war on drugs and so on. I, you know, he's been very, very supportive. But uh, we've had a great relationship. This has been uh, very successful. We have many meetings today with many other leaders. The ASEAN conference has been handled beautifully by the president and the Philippines and your representatives, and I've really enjoyed being here. The weather is always good. Today it's pretty good.
But uh, folks, you might remember uh, that Donald Trump had a phone call with Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte. Trump apparently had a very friendly conversation with Duterte and even invited him to the White House. Trump is cozying up Duterte, and that's kind of messed up because Duterte has declared a war on drugs. And in the past year, Philippine national police officers and unidentified vigilantes have killed over 7,000 people. And Duterte isn't just a guy who talks the talk. When he was a small-town mayor, he claims, I used to do it personally. I'd go around with a motorcycle looking for trouble. I was looking for a confrontation so I could kill. Can you imagine what it was like to live in that town? Quick, call the cops. The mayor's here. We, we really can't expect that the United States will respond to this. Yeah. And so what we're seeing is, is most of the, the world's liberal democracies you know, turning a blind eye. And the problem is that if the Philippines government is able to get away with this, if there are no consequences, other governments in the region will see it and take their own fairly draconian measures. It's a generalized backsliding in press freedom. Mm. Um, And I think this judgment extends that. Now, again, why should we care? Well, we know, again, that when you end up with autocratic governments, um, instability tends to follow. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of reasons to fear the encroachment of autocratic regimes, but just a little bit to play devil's advocate. In the case of Duterte, obviously, his claim to fame before being president is um, he was the mayor of Davao. I mean, he was, he's been the same character this whole time, so he was campaigning on quashing drugs, quashing crime. And when he entered office, the city was really a, a bed of crime and violence. And over the 30 years that he was at the helm, he did manage to make it one of the safest cities in the Philippines. So, I mean, do you think that that is a a counter argument to the idea that someone with those strongman autocratic tendencies inevitably introduces instability into a region? Um, I think that, let's go back to first principles of a democracy. For a democracy to work, it needs several basic things. It needs um, the rule of law. It needs the free flow of information so that people are able to make democratic judgments about the policies and the effects of the government that's in place. And that means critical and often very uncomfortable reporting. Now, if people in the Philippines are genuinely happy with what President Duterte is doing, if they're fully aware of what's going on and the consequences of his policies, um, if, they go, if news organizations are able to freely and fairly report what's taking place under his administration, they still decide to vote him in, then it's very difficult to disagree with that. I, you know, personally, I think, I think his regime has been, I think his administration has been disastrous, but that's mm-hmm. my own opinion. And, and if Filipinos decide to vote to support him in a free and fair election, that's fine. But the problem is that you can't say that's happening, that Filipinos are making a free and fair choice, democratic choice, if they don't have access to a free press that is capable of doing aggressive reporting. As long as they're behaving ethically and legally, there should be no reason to shut them down. And if President Duterte is genuinely comfortable with his policies, then 
he shouldn't have anything to fear. The way he's been running, the way he's been operating, has been to stick a huge thumb on the scales of democracy by intimidating journalists, by stopping media from doing, from fulfilling, frankly, its democratic duty. And that's why I think this is a problem. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's hard to say that you have a really transparent view of the government itself if you don't have these democratic principles that protect a free press. I know that you've had your own firsthand experience, your own really chilling experience of this persecution of the media. So you, more than you know, almost anyone else knows what Maria is facing and what this is like. Could you tell us a bit about what happened to you? Yeah, I was, I, yeah, I mean, I, I was still a little bit triggered uh, when I heard the verdict. From, um, I can imagine. About five years ago, um, I was in Egypt. Um, I'd been arrested by the Egyptian authorities when, when I was working for Al Jazeera. Um, we had been covering the unfolding political crisis in Egypt. Um, we had been covering with all of the independence and integrity that we could muster. And of course, as in any political conflict, um, you have an obligation to speak to all parties to the dispute. And that included the Muslim Brotherhood, who six months earlier had just been ousted after they were elected, and they became the first democratically elected administration in Egypt's history. They'd been forced out in a coup. Now, at the time, the government had started accusing the Muslim Brotherhood of being involved in acts of terrorism. Um, and so by speaking to the Brotherhood and their supporters, we became apparently, as far as the government was concerned, guilty of advocating terrorist ideology. And we were arrested, charged with terrorism offences. Oh. And um, after a show trial that lasted about five months, um, against all of the evidence, which showed, frankly, that we were doing what good journalists are supposed to be doing, uh, we were convicted and uh, sentenced to seven years in prison. Now, that triggered a huge public backlash, not just um, here in Australia, but uh, um, all over the world, in fact. This is an affront to journalists everywhere. And it was back in the news this week because the three journalists were back in court for their ninth appearance in what sure seems like a sham three trial. Three of my colleagues are in jail for doing their job. As you know very well, there are three journalists, at least right now, for international organizations, including a former CNN, who are accused of terrorism, and this is simply being thrown out to tar anybody who disagrees. So my question remains, do you see a possibility uh, do they have for a, a valid this kind of autocracy to, as to end. In Egypt here? Oh, yes, do they, they have do. A Sauris, yes, of course Sorry. they do. And um, as a result of the political, public, diplomatic pressure on Egypt, uh, the government finally decided to release me and my colleagues. There were three of us in all who were, who yeah. were arrested and uh, imprisoned. Um, I spent 400 days in prison. My colleagues spent a little bit longer, but um, they're they're all now out. Right. So, I you know I know personally how governments can and will weaponize the law to come after journalists whenever they're doing reporting that they feel is uncomfortable yeah. and doesn't line up with their own own political philosophy. I mean, that must have been 
just such a surreal experience for you in, you know, the year 2015 or around then and working for such a prestigious, well-respected organization to find yourself convicted of terrorism charges. I mean, what was going through your head in that courtroom when that happened? Oh, I couldn't believe it. I mean, we, we thought, well, anybody who saw the trial, um, and believe me, it was very, very closely watched indeed. Yeah. Anyone who saw it and acknowledged that there was no evidence, none whatsoever, to, con- to support any of the allegations against us. Uh, so we thought, well, look, the most obvious thing for the court to do would be to acquit us. That would then show the court that they were genuinely independent, um, that they followed rule, they respected the rule of law, they respected the evidence, and they'd win a lot of international kudos for, for that. Mm. But we thought, well, maybe they'll have to they'll have to convict us of something because to go through the whole fast, you know, they need to do something to justify it. So we thought, well, maybe, you know, we've already spent six months in prison, you know, time served would probably make mm. everybody happy. They'd get their conviction, we'd get out of prison and allowed to go home. And then we thought, well, maybe no, would they convict us? You know, maybe they'd need to give us a little bit longer, a week or two, surely not more than a month uh, yeah. in extra prison. So to be convicted and get sentenced, sentenced to seven years was, mm. a, was a real hammer blow. I mean, I, 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 we, we just didn't see that coming. Yeah. Maybe it was naive looking back, but at the time we were very confident indeed. In fact, we'd started making plans for, for the trips to the parties that we were going <laughs> to uh, you know, the day after we got out of prison. So were the three of you housed in a cell together? How did it work in the, it was an Egyptian prison, right? Yeah, well, I, in all, I was in two police cells and three separate prisons. Um, the first prison I was kept separately from my colleagues. That was through the pretrial period. Um, I was kept in solitary confinement for, for a period in a political mm. prison, along with a lot of other um, activists um, mm. who were opposed to the government. When the trial began, we were moved into um, a supermax prison along with the leader, most of the leadership of Muslim Brotherhood. Um, we were put in the cell together, the three of us, um, for 23 hours a day. We were only allowed out for one hour of exercise, and that was on our own with no other, other prisoners. Um, and then when we were finally convicted, um, we were moved into a third prison um, with, a, with a number of other, other people. Wow. So it was the range of conditions um, that were all pretty tough, although I do acknowledge that the conditions we were held in weren't anywhere near as serious as some of the worst prison conditions of, uh, that uh, others in Egypt were, were, um, had to suffer. And I think that's largely because of, of the really intense international pressure that was on the government to, to, to look after us and keep us safe. So then, thank God, you, you didn't have to serve the full sentence in the end. So how did you manage to get out after, I mean, still a, over a year, unbelievably, in prison, but how did you manage to get out in the end? Well, I, I don't really know. I mean, to this day, mm-hmm. I don't. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm convinced it was because of, of the sustained campaigns um, from yeah. my colleagues, my family, uh, my supporters, our supporters here in Australia and around the world. Uh, you know, the, our professional colleagues, the journalists, um, saw our case as a really 
as a, as a major cause to lead and, and really lined up behind us in a way that I still find quite extraordinary and very humbling. Yeah. Um, and I think that was that had a lot to do with it. But I, I have absolutely no reason what the what the actual what, you know, what, what it was that um, made the Egyptian authorities change their minds. I was deported on a presidential order, an executive decree. Mm. Um, and in fact, on the day that I was released, I was about to tell my, my brother was due for a visit and I was preparing to tell him that we need to start a hunger strike because I was convinced that the authorities were, were messing around with this. They had no intention of, of seeing the appeal process go through. Wow. And and so yeah, when when I was told, um, I I was I just couldn't believe it that I was that I was actually going home. When I was released, um, there were no papers, no documents, um, there was no no written agreement. I wasn't deported to Australia to be you know um, on on a kind of there was no prisoner exchange. There was no yeah. um, I wasn't deported to Australia formally. I mean or extradited to Australia because Australia had no extradition treaty with Egypt. And as far as Australians were concerned, there was no evidence that I'd committed any crime. And so that was the end of it. Wow. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I'm still, I'm still <laughs> flummoxed by, by what it was. Uh, you know, I can only guess at the, the reasons behind it, but, but honestly, I, I have no idea. Thank God it, it did have that resolution. And while you say, you know, that was the end of it. In some ways, I'm sure it wasn't really the end of it for you. I mean, how did it change you as a journalist to have gone through that experience? Well, it kind of bucked up my career a bit. I mean, I, I still, after I was released, um, the, the, there was, because we, we had appealed our conviction and we'd won the appeal and, and uh, the court ordered a retrial. Um, and my colleagues, well, I, that, and the retrial began soon after I got back to Australia. My colleagues were released on bail through the retrial. At the end of the retrial, we were, we were all reconvicted and got renewed sentences. They were oh reduced, God. but we were still sentenced to new prison terms. Um, my colleagues were pardoned and released, but I'm still technically a convicted terrorist with an outstanding prison sentence oh to serve. Oh, my God. And so it's quite dodgy for me to travel to any country that has an extradition treaty with Egypt. Now, wow. before I was arrested, I was um, based in Africa, in Nairobi. I was Al Jazeera's East Africa correspondent. And uh, the problem is that there is one extradition treaty that covers the whole of the African Union. Mm. So that kind of messed that, that idea up. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as I said, being a foreign correspondent involves an awful lot of travel. Um, and there are a lot of countries that have extradition treaties. So I have to be, you know, have to be very, very careful about where I go in the circumstances yeah. that I can do it. So I, I, I can't, it's, it messed up my career. Now, it's made me feel quite bloody-minded about the journalism, and I still report when I can. But now, as you mentioned in your introduction, I'm an academic, um, but also spend a lot of my time advocating for press freedom and, and supporting people like Maria and, and other journalists who find themselves in, in prison under these circumstances. I mean, if we look back to your experience, as scarring as it was, at least there was that international outcry. And in the end, there was justice. You were able to escape. So do you think that maybe have you been heading in a direction of less press freedom? And is that sort of a temporary thing in the last few years? Or what's your sense of press freedom around the world? <laughs> if, if our purpose is to try and shore up press freedom, then we're not we're doing a pretty lousy job of it, I'm afraid. 
Um, look, the, the, the fact is that all of the organizations that examine the track these things, groups like Reporters Without Borders, RSF, uh, Freedom House, um, the Committee for the Protection of Journals based in New York, all of these organizations consistently show the same trends, that since 9-11, we're seeing press freedom decline around the world. And at the moment, it's the worst that it's been in two decades. Um, and that's, that's because I think, I mean, I, I mentioned 9-11 for a reason. What 9-11 did was create a culture, um, a discourse of, of security. It made the war on terror the primary focus for, for governments all over the world. And terrorism has given governments a license to impose all sorts of wartime powers that I think are frankly deeply destructive, deeply damaging, not just to press freedom, but to human rights in a lot of cases and, and democratic principles more broadly. And often those laws have been working in fairly insidious ways, fairly subtle ways. Mm. Um, let's take a law here in Australia, for example, the data retention legislation, which the government sold to Australians as being essential to give the security agencies the tools they need to intercept terrorist communications. Now, what the data retention legislation does is it forces the telecommunications companies to hold on to the metadata of every Australian for at least two years, and it gives a whole host of government agencies the right to access that metadata without a warrant. Now, for those of you who don't know, metadata is not the content of communications, but it's the information about the communication. So things like who you emailed and when, where you were at the time of that email, uh, where they were at the time. Um, if you send that email from your from your mobile phone, where you were at the time, and, and you know where you travel with your mobile phone, it tracks the websites that you that you visit. Um, it tracks a whole host of information that. On it, each piece of data on its own is not particularly useful, but when you put all that together, you can learn a tremendous amount about what people have been up to. Now, again, from a human rights perspective, that's deeply troubling because it gives a whole host of, of really intrusive search powers to government agencies without the traditional judicial oversight of a warrant. But as far as journalists are concerned, it makes it almost impossible to protect their sources. Mm. And the net result is that sources are drying up. They're afraid to come forward because they're afraid they'll be exposed. Um, that's what a lot of our research has been showing. Now, this is just one tiny example of the way in which this legislation has been working against press freedom and democratic accountability. I'm not suggesting that the um, agency shouldn't have the tools that they need to investigate. I'm not suggesting that journalists should have free and unfettered access to all of the information in every government department there is, including the security agencies. What I am saying, though, is that there needs to be much better protections for the work that journalists do, that the places that they're not allowed to look must be more clearly defined and, and, very str and, and strictly limited, because Governments are using this as a, as a cover to, to shut down all sorts of otherwise perfectly legitimate inquiry. And that, I think, is deeply troubling. The main point is, and let me just reiterate what I went back to 
earlier on, and that is that this is not about journalists. You know, the personal level, because of what I, my own experiences, obviously I, I'm concerned about journalists, but, more, but this is really about the principle of press freedom and what it means for the people that these democracies and the press are supposed to be serving. Because ultimately, if we can't, if journalists can't report freely and fairly and openly, um, then it's their readers and audiences who won't be getting the information that they really need to, to keep government to account. And that's really what this is all about.